This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First and Last by Hilaire Belloc Chapter 4 The Captain of Industry The heir of the merchant Mahmoud had not disappointed that great financier while he still lived, and when he died he had the satisfaction of seeing the young man, now twenty-five years of age, successfully conducting his numerous affairs, and increasing, fabulous as this may seem, the millions with which his uncle entrusted him. Shortly after Mahmoud's death, the prosperity of the firm had already given rise to a new proverb, and men said, Do you think I am Mahmoud's nephew? when they were asked to lend money, or in some other way to jeopardize a few coppers in the service of God or their neighbor. It was also a current expression, he's rich as Mahmoud's nephew, when comrades would jest against some young fellow who was flusher than usual and could afford a quart or even a gallon of wine for the company, while again the discontented and the oppressed would mutter between their teeth, Heaven will take vengeance at last upon these Mahmoud's nephews, in a word, Mahmoud's nephew came to mean throughout the whole caliphate, and wherever the true believers spread their empire, an exceedingly wealthy man. But Mahmoud himself, having been dead ten years, and his heir, the fortunate head of the establishment, being now well over thirty years of age, there happened a very inexplicable and outrageous accident. He died, and after his death no instructions were discovered as to what should be done with this enormous capital. No will could be found, and it happened moreover to be a moment of great financial delicacy when the manager of each department in the business needed all the credit he could get. In such a quandary the chief organizer and confidential friend Ahmed, upon whom the business already largely depended, and who was so circumstanced that he could draw almost at will upon the balances, imagined a most intelligent way of escaping from the difficulties that would arise when the death of the principal was known. He caused a quantity of hay, of straw, of dust, and other worthless materials to be stuffed into a figure of canvas. This he wrapped round with the usual clothes that Mahmoud's nephew had worn in the office. He shrouded the face with the hood which his chief had commonly worn during his life, and having so dressed the lay figure, and secretly buried the real body, he admitted upon the morning after the death those who first had business with his master. He met them at the door with smiles and bows, saying, You know, gentlemen, that like most really successful men, my chief is as silent as his decisions are rapid. He will listen to what you have to say, and it will be a plain yes or no at the end of it. These gentlemen came with a proposal to sell to the firm for the sum of one million dinars, a barren rock in the Indian Sea, which was not even theirs, and on which indeed not one of them had ever set eyes. Their claim to advance so original a proposal was that to their certain knowledge two thousand of the wealthiest citizens of their town were willing to buy the rock again at a profit from whoever should be its possessor during the next few weeks, in the fond hope of selling it once again to provincials, clerics, widows, orphans, and in general the uninstructed and the credulous, among whom had been industriously spread the report that the rock in question consisted of one solid and flawless diamond. 
These gentlemen, sitting round the table before the shrouded figure, laid down their proposals, whereupon the manager briefly summed up what they had said, and, having done so, replied, Gentlemen, his lordship is a man of few words, but you will have your answer in a moment, if you will be good enough to rise, as he is at this moment expecting a deputation from the holy men who are entreating him to provide the cost of a mosque in one of the suburbs. The proposers of the bargain rose, greatly awed and pleased by the silence and dignity of the financier, who apparently remained for a moment discussing their proposals without gesture, and in a tone too low for them to hear, while his manager bent over to listen. "'It is ever so,' said one of them. "'You may ever know the greatest men by their silence.' "'You are right,' said another. "'He is not to be easily deceived.' The manager in a moment or two rejoined them at the door. "'Gentlemen,' he said, smiling, "'my chief has heard your arguments, and has expressed his assent to your conditions.' They went out delighted at the success of their mission, and congratulated Ahmed upon the financier's genius. "'He does not,' said the manager, laughing in hearty agreement, "'bestow himself as a present upon all in sundry. Nor is he often caught indulging in short bouts of sleep. Nor are the flies diabolically left to repose undisturbed upon his features.' but you must excuse me i hear the holy men and indeed from the inner room came a noise of speechifying and that doleful sing-song which is associated in baghdad with the practice of religion the gentleman who had thus had the luck to interview mahmoud's nephew with such success in the matter of the diamond island soon spread about the news and confirmed their fellow-citizens in the certitude that a great financier is neither talkative nor vivacious Still waters run deep, they said, and all those to whom they said it nodded in a wise acquiescence. Nor had the manager the least difficulty in receiving one set of customers after another, and in negotiating within three weeks an infinite amount of business, all of which confirmed those who had the pleasure of an audience with the stuffed dummy, that great fortunes were made and retained by reticence and a contempt for convivial weaknesses. At last the ingenious man of affairs, to whom the whole combination was due, was not a little disturbed to receive from the caliph a note couched in the following terms. The commander of the faithful and the servant of the merciful, whose name will be exalted, to the nephew of Mahmoud. My lord, it has been the custom since the days of my grandfather, may his soul see God, for the more wealthy of the faithful to be called to my counsels, and upon my summoning them thither, it has not been unusual for them to present sums varying in magnitude, but always proportionate to their total fortunes. My court will receive signal honor if you will present yourself after this morning prayer of the day after tomorrow. My treasurer will receive from you with gratitude and remembrance upon the previous day, and not later than noon, the sum of one million dinars. Here indeed was a perplexity. The payment of the money was an easy matter, and was duly accomplished, but how should the lay figure which did duty in such domestic scenes as the negotiation of loans, the bullying of debtors, the purchase of options, and the cheating of the innocent and the embarrassed, take his place in the caliph's council, and remain undiscovered? For great as was the reputation of Mahmoud's nephew, for discretion and for golden silence, such as are proper to the accumulations of great wealth, there would seem a necessity in any political assembly to open the mouth from time to time, if only for the giving of a vote. 
but Ahmed, who had by this time accumulated into his own hands the millions, formerly his masters, finally solved the problem. Judicious presence to the servants of the palace and the public criers made his way the easier, and on the summoning of the council, Mahmoud's nephew, whose troublesome affection of the throat was now publicly discussed, was permitted to bring into the council room his private secretary and manager. Moreover, at the council, as at his private office, the continued taciturnity of the millionaire could not but impress the politicians as it had already impressed the financial world. He does not waste his breath in tub-thumping, said one, looking reverently at the sealed figure. No, another would reply, they may ridicule our old-fashioned, honest, quiet, Mohammedan country gentlemen, but for common sense I will back them against all the brilliant, paradoxical young fellows of our day. They say he is very kind at heart and lovable, the third would then add, upon which a fourth would bear his testimony thus. Yes, and though he says nothing about it, his charitable gifts are enormous. By the second meeting of the council, the lay figure had achieved a reputation of so high a sort that the caliph himself insisted upon making him a domestic adviser, one of the three who perpetually associated with the commander of the faithful and directed his policy. For the universal esteem in which the new councillor was held had affected that prince very deeply. Here there arose a crux from which there could be no escape, as one of the three chief councillors, Mahmoud's nephew, must speak at last and deliver judgments. The manager, first considering the whole business, and next adding up his private gains, which he had carefully laid out in estates of which the firm and its employees knew nothing, decided that he could afford to retire. What might happen to the general business after his withdrawal would not be his concern. He first gave out, therefore, that the millionaire was taken exceedingly ill, and that his life was despaired of, later, within a few hours, that he was dead. So far from attempting to allay the panic which ensued, Ahmed frankly admitted the worst. With cries of despair and a confident appeal to the justice of heaven against such intrigues, the honest fellow permitted the whole of the vast business to be wound up in favor of newcomers, who had not forgotten to reward him and soothing as best he could the ruined crowds of small investors who thronged round him for help and advice. He retired under an assumed name to his highly profitable estates, which were situated in the most distant provinces of the known world. As for Mahmoud's nephew, three theories arose about him which are still disputed to this day. The first was that his magnificent brain, with its equitable judgment and its power of strict secrecy, had designed plans too far advanced for his time, and that his bankruptcy was due to excess of wisdom. The second theory would have it that by going into politics, as the phrase runs in Baghdad, he had dissipated his energies, neglected his business, and that the inevitable consequences had followed. The third theory was far more reasonable. Mahmoud's nephew, according to this, had toward the ends of his life lost judgment, his garrulous indecision within the last few days before his death was notorious in the caliph's council, as those who should best know were sure. One could hardly get a word in edgewise for his bombastic self-assurance while in matters of business. To conduct a bargain with him was more like attending a public meeting than the prosecution of negotiations with a respectable banker. 
In a word, it was generally agreed that Mamal's nephew's success had been bound up with his splendid silence, his fall, bankruptcy, and death, with a lesion of the brain which had disturbed this miracle of self-control. End of chapter 4